everyone. Welcome back to The Haunted Corner. I'm Ashton, and today we're discussing a heavy one. When you think of school disasters, you may think of Columbine High School or Sandy Hook Elementary School or any one of the other almost 400 school shootings that have occurred since 1999. But what you may not think of or at least I didn't until I read about this, is the deadliest act of mass murder in a school, which occurred in Bath Township, Michigan in 1927. I used several sources in my research for this episode. There's a really good book about the event called Maniac, the Bath School Disaster and the Birth of the Modern Mass Killer, written by Harold Schechter. I read a ton of newspaper articles, There's a lot to get to, so let's get into it. The story begins in Bath Township, Michigan, named after the New York hometown of its pioneering settler, Silas W. Rose. Bath Township was established in 1843, six years after Michigan had achieved its statehood. It's located about 10 miles northeast of Lansing, Michigan. And in 1956, the area suffered a terrible forest fire that covered the countryside in thick black smoke, causing fish to die in the streams and creating difficulties for travelers who couldn't see more than a few feet in front of them. This time would be referred to as the dark days for locals who had no way of knowing that there were much darker days ahead of them. By 1860, the population of Bath Township had grown to 515 people and would reach 1,600 by the time the century ended. Early historians of Bath took pride in the very low incidence of crime in the township. There were a few violent events here and there, a wife shooting her estranged husband in the back as he knelt in prayer by their dying daughter's bedside, a man going whiskey mad and attacking a stranger with an axe, and smaller crimes such as a town treasurer being accused of embezzling $1,000 and a farmer being arrested for, quote, selling the diseased carcass of a beef critter to a Lansing meat market. You know, just little things. But overall, the crime level in the town was fairly low. Between 1890 and 1920, during the Progressive Era, reforms were underway to overhaul the largely outdated school systems in rural areas. Children who lived in bigger cities were being educated to compete in an ever-changing world in larger, more established schools, while children in rural communities were still being taught the same way their pioneer ancestors had been taught in one-room schoolhouses with the same teacher leading all grades. So, in place of these one-room schoolhouses, new, larger, consolidated schools were being built to provide education from 1st to 12th grade. And eventually, this new way of educating the youth made its way to Michigan in 1919. Many people were open to the new education system, arguing that building these new schools with more advanced curriculum and trained teachers to implement it was the only way for the children of the rural communities to receive the same educational opportunities as their counterparts who lived in the city. But not everyone was on board with this new change. 
Many of the older residents were opposed to this new way of educating the younger members of the community because they felt like the education they had received was perfect. You know, it was adequate. They couldn't see the point of receiving an education beyond the eighth grade. And they also didn't want to pay the higher taxes to construct the schools. And this is where we meet a man named Andrew Philip Kehoe. Andrew was born on February 1st of 1872 in Tecumseh, Michigan. He was the first son of the family, which eventually grew to include 13 children. As he grew up, it became clear that Andrew was very mechanically inclined. He was always constructing electrical devices, which he installed on his father's farm and coming up with new ways to increase productivity. He was also reportedly at the top of his high school physics class, which is more than I can say for myself. Um, Some described Andrew as distant and quiet. However, others described how Andrew was an active participant in farmers clubs and also performed comedic skits with a friend to entertain people at school and at home. He was a big participant in the community and more serious topics, including taxes and specifically where the funds were being spent. Andrew was only 18 when his mother, Mary, died of a long illness described as a disease of the nervous system. During this time, Andrew remained at his father's side, working on the farm and inventing contraptions to help with the workload. In 1898, Andrew's father, Philip, who was 65 at the time, married a 40-year-old widow named Frances Murphy Wilder, and not long after that, Andrew moved out of the home. There wasn't a ton known about his whereabouts until the year 1900, when a census shows that he lived in a boarding house in Ann Arbor and worked as a dairyman. Andrew himself claimed that during this time he enrolled at the Michigan State Agriculture College in East Lansing before moving to Iowa, where he worked as a lineman. He bounced around to St. Louis, where he attended another electrical school and worked as an electrician for the city. And according to family members, while he was in Missouri, he suffered a serious fall and received a severe head injury as a result. So that's a red flag. This head injury reportedly left him semi-conscious for nearly two months, which is not good. Another census in 1910 showed that Andrew was living back in Lenawee County, Michigan, with his stepmother and his father, and he was employed as a farm laborer. Andrew was now a brother again to a girl named Irene, and this is where we begin to see another side to Andrew. Irene was said to have a cat, which Andrew killed, and this led to another critical event in Andrew's life. In the fall of 1911, Frances, Andrew's stepmother, was preparing dinner on the gasoline stove in the kitchen. Now, gasoline stoves at the time were being advertised as being more efficient and clean than wood-burning stoves. However, like many things that are new, they weren't super safe to begin with, and annual reports by the Michigan State Inspector of Illuminating Oils showed that dozens of often fatal accidents that were caused by gasoline stove explosions had occurred. 
And that morning, when Francis held a match to the stove, it exploded and engulfed her in flames. Andrew, hearing the explosion, rushed to the kitchen, but he didn't immediately jump in to help his stepmother. According to Monty Ellsworth, one of Andrew Kehoe's earliest biographers, he said, quote, he stood and watched her burn for a while and then got a pail of water and threw it all over her. The water caused the burning oil to spread across her body. At that time, Philip and Irene came into the kitchen and the three were able to put the flames out and they carried Frances to her bed. Because they didn't have a phone, Andrew had to run down the street to the house of Hetty Murphy. She had a phone and was preparing dinner at the time that Andrew arrived. He asked her if she could call Dr. Tuttle. When Hetty asked if someone was sick, Andrew said, quote, no, Fanny got burned. Would you call the priest too? End quote. By the time help arrived, though, it was clear that Frances was beyond help and she died a few hours later. Her death was ruled accidental, but later events would bring that into question. Eight months after Frances's death, Andrew married a woman named Ellen Agnes Price, also known as Nellie. The two settled into the farm where Andrew continued to work with his father, Nellie became close with Andrew's sister, Irene, who was only 10 years old at the time. She became a motherly figure for her. Nellie started attending the Catholic church in town, which Andrew had stopped attending. When a new church was being built, donations were solicited from the congregants. When they were asked to donate $400, Andrew refused to pay And when the priest showed up at the farm, he told him to get off his property and even threatened the priest with violence if he didn't leave. On another occasion, Andrew reportedly purchased steers from a neighbor and put them in a field of a field of wet clover, which is not good in the farming world. This caused two of the cows to die from what is known as cattle bloat. Andrew was not happy, and he tried to get half of what he had lost on the animal's back from the neighbor who had sold them to him. The neighbor obviously refused, and Andrew stopped talking to him because he felt like he had been defrauded. Philip Kehoe died in 1915, and Andrew became the executor of his estate. Then, in 1917, Nellie's uncle Lawrence Price died and left behind an 80-acre farm in Bath. Nellie and Andrew were immediately interested in purchasing the farm. It was listed for $12,000. Andrew put down $6,000 and arranged to pay $360 per month to Lawrence's widow Julia, his brother Richard, and the family attorney, who were the executors of the estate. Andrew put the Kehoe farm up for sale, and it took two years to sell. He then sold his sheep and cattle and made arrangements to ship the furniture and farm equipment to Michigan. And then in the spring of 1919, Andrew and Nellie made their way to Bath Township. As the Kehoe settled into their new home, the neighbors noticed how helpful Andrew was. Anytime they asked him for a favor, he would get it done, no questions asked or hesitations, and he wouldn't take money for the help he offered. Nellie grew up 
in Bath and was quickly welcomed back into the community with her new husband. They played card games with other couples, went to parties and get-togethers. But people quickly began to notice how intense Andrew was. He wasn't fond of anyone who didn't meet his exact standards. He was always dressed to the nines and didn't like being dirty. He'd change his shirt in the middle of the day if he noticed that it had gotten dirty. He kept everything neat and tidy and in order. Everything had a specific spot, and his barn was said to be cleaner than most houses were. But Andrew had a darker and more sadistic side to him than anyone realized. A woman who lived nearby named Lulu Hart drove Nellie to church every Sunday. She had a little dog that she loved, and about a year after Andrew and Nellie moved to Bath Township, the dog went missing. When Lulu came to the farm to see if they had seen her dog, Andrew indicated that he had, and he said, quote, It was burying a bone beside my road fence, and I shot the damn nuisance. After that, Lulu didn't drive Nellie to church anymore. And um, on another occasion, Lulu's husband, David, came by the farm on an errand and noticed that Andrew was working the horses well past their breaking point. They were clearly struggling. And later that night, one of the horses died. The next day, David went by the farm again as a truck was hauling the horse away. He asked Andrew about what had happened, and he said, quote, he ought to have been killed years ago. He didn't pull, and we had a mix-up, and when I got through with him, he was dead, end quote. So he beat his horse to death. So this guy obviously sucks. As the Kehoes were settling into Bath, though, the talk of building a consolidated school in the township was still ongoing. Rather than building an entirely new school, town officials selected a school that was centrally located to expand and reconstruct. Work began in the fall of 1921, and by the following October, school was in session in what was known as one of the most modern schools in Michigan. On October 9th, seven school buses, six of which were motor-driven and one that was horse-drawn, transported 236 students to their new place of learning. The students had a strict dress code. The boys were dressed in knickers, clean shirts, and bow ties, while the girls wore fresh gingham with carefully groomed and bowed hair. The official dedication of this new school was on November 14th, and less than two weeks later, a farmer named Harry Delameter crashed his car into one of the school buses carrying the students home from the consolidated school. Fortunately, no one was seriously injured, and Harry was charged with driving while intoxicated. He was given the choice of a $50 fine or 60 days in jail, and he chose the fine. While the beautiful new school was thriving, our buddy Andrew Kehoe was not. As early as 1921, he was experiencing financial hardships. The profits that his crops yielded were barely enough to cover the expenses of the farm. He missed several mortgage payments and eventually had to reach out to the attorney for his wife's uncle and family to make arrangements for an extension on the mortgage. 
And after the new consolidated school was built, Andrew found himself in an even more dire situation. The taxes levied for the new consolidated school were $12.26 per $1,000 of property valuation, which in Andrew's case was around $150 at the time. He complained that this didn't leave him much to live off of, and it was increasingly frustrating for him because he and Nellie didn't even have children. That was his reasoning for why he was so upset. Andrew didn't feel like the school board was handling the public's money appropriately, and he wanted to do something about it. So he decided to run for a place on the school board. The election was held in July of 1924. Out of 100 votes and six candidates, Andrew received 55 votes, and he was elected for a term of three years. He was chosen to fill the role of treasurer, and he didn't waste any time trying to find ways to cut expenses. He immediately cut the janitor's salary by $60 and began what would be an ongoing battle with the superintendent of the consolidated school, a man named Emery Huck. He was annoyed by the superintendent's presence at the board meetings and tried to have him banned, but that was eventually overruled by the other board members who liked the superintendent and valued his opinions. While Andrew wasn't a fan of Emory, the community and board members were. They admired his dedication to the school and the students. He was constantly requesting funds for textbooks, encyclopedias, new playground equipment, and much more, which, of course, irritated Andrew even more because he felt as though that spending that the superintendent was doing was going to increase the taxes even more and bring everyone down. When it came time to consider Emery's annual raise of $200, Andrew made sure that he only received $100, claiming it was a cost-saving measure. But really, he just didn't like him because he also cut the superintendent's two-week summer vacation down to a one-week vacation. Like, this guy was just petty. After the death of the town clerk, a woman named Maud Milliman, Andrew was asked to fill out her term, which was another year long. That winter, the school had had a bee infestation that no one could get rid of. That is, until Andrew came along and somehow was ex- was able to exterminate the bees. After this, the school board decided to allow Andrew to become the unofficial handyman of the school. He was allowed to set up a work area in the basement and had unlimited access to the building. Over the next two years, he became a fixture around the school, repairing things around the school and getting to know the building from the inside out. In the fall of 1924, the Department of Agriculture began to distribute a low-grade explosive called pyrotol. It was used by farmers to clear tree stumps and boulders from their properties. One evening in the fall of 1925, Andrew Kehoe asked a neighbor named John Slight to take him to run an errand. He didn't have a car at this time, so he asked Job to take him to Jackson, which was a town about 50 miles away. When Job asked him what he needed out there, Andrew told him pyrotol. 
So assuming he would be using it to clear some tree stumps on the farm, Job agreed to take him. They traveled to Jackson, where Andrew bought 500 pounds of the explosive. 10 boxes, which Job then helped Andrew unload at the farm. And this is not raising red flags for him at this time. So as the time came for Andrew's term as the replacement for the town clerk was set to expire, and he really thought that he was going to be reelected. So when the next election occurred in April of 1926, it was pretty shocking to him when he wasn't nominated as a candidate by his party. The next spring, he ran for a justice of the peace and was defeated. So things were not going well for Andrew. His wife, Nellie, had become ill and had been hospitalized. He hadn't paid his mortgage in over four years. And Nellie's family was becoming impatient with the lack of payment, obviously. As one of the heirs, Nellie was supposed to receive a $500 legacy payment from her uncle's estate. Instead of sending the check, the lawyer applied the payment to the past due mortgage payments, which... Nellie, of course, thought was fair, but Andrew, however, was not okay with that, and he took the matter to court, where a judge ruled in his favor and a $500 check was ordered to be sent to the family. After seven more months without a mortgage payment, though, Nellie's family began foreclosure proceedings. And when the foreclosure notice was placed in Andrew's hands, he reportedly said, quote, if it hadn't been for that $300 school tax, I might have paid off the mortgage. In early 1927, strange things began to occur. Reports started to come in of explosions at the Kehoe farm. Andrew admitted to setting out some pyrotol and wiring it up to a timer made from an alarm clock. As spring came, neighbors began to notice that the farm was in a terrible condition and that crops were left rotting in the fields. And people began reporting some strange interactions with Andrew himself. One of the bus drivers named Ward Kyes claimed that on a payday, Andrew would normally just hand out the paychecks and not say very much to the employees. But on this particular day, as Ward reached for the check, he dropped it and he remembers Andrew saying, quote, you better keep that. That may be the last you'll ever get. Um, sir. On another occasion in early May, one of the teachers named Ida Hall, who lived nearby the school, remembered that around 2 a.m. she heard the sound of a truck. She saw a Ford pickup parked near the front of the school, and she saw someone unloading crates from the truck and carrying them inside the school. The janitor also reported strange instances in which he discovered a trapdoor to a crawl space in the school that had been left open on a couple different occasions. One occasion, he figured he had left it open after he had climbed in there to fix a leaky pipe. But the second occasion, he wasn't so sure. He thought maybe the superintendent had gone down there to check on his work when he fixed the pipe and maybe had left it open. On May 16th, one of the teachers called Andrew to see if it would be okay if she brought her class to the Grove on the property for a picnic. And he told her that she could, but um, she should do it, quote, right away. So, what? 
Around this time in early May of 1927, Nellie, Andrew's wife, was released from the hospital and she went to her sister's home in Lansing to recover. Andrew was set to pick her up on May 15th, but was delayed because of a storm, so he picked her up on Monday, May 16th instead. And when her sister called to check on her at the farm, Andrew mentioned that she wasn't there, that she had gone to Jackson to visit her friends. Um, so she just got out of the hospital and now she's traveling to Jackson? No. So her sister asked him when she was going to pick, when he was going to pick her up from Jackson, and he said he was going to be pick her, picking her up on Thursday. The last day of school was scheduled for Wednesday, May 18th of 1927, which was final exam day. Not everyone was required to take a final exam. Some students who had maintained good grades throughout the year were exempt, as well as some of the other younger students. But still, there were over 250 students in the school when the bell rang that morning. That morning, Andrew had run into one of the other school board members named Albert Detlef. Albert had just returned from a neighbor's house and asked Andrew about the date of the next school board meeting. He also asked Andrew to come with him to check on a broken water pump at the school. After they arrived at the school, they went to the basement where janitor Frank Smith was waiting for a repairman. Albert began talking to Frank about the water pump, and sometime during the conversation, Andrew had taken off. The generator in the school was also malfunctioning that day, meaning the electric classroom school bells weren't working either. So the principal, Floyd Huggett, had to sound the old-fashioned bell in the main hallway at exactly 9.30 to signal the start of the school day. After this, Principal Huggett went next door to the Methodist church where two senior girls were practicing for the next day's commencement ceremony. As the bell rang, the students, including 15-year-old freshman Martha Hintz, made their way into the school. Martha headed towards the assembly room where she would be taking her final exams proctored by the superintendent, Emery Huck. A few of the senior boys didn't have to be in class until after lunch, so they started playing with a softball in front of the school. Two of the teachers, Hazel Weatherby and Leona Gutenkust, treated their younger students to a story to kick off the last day of school. These students didn't have final exams, so their final day of school would look a little bit different than the older students. In Blanche Hart's fifth grade classroom, she notified her students that they would be switching classrooms with the fifth grade students who were taking their final exams that day. The repairman, George Harrington, showed up around this time, and he and Frank Smith started working on the re- on repairing the water pump. As the clock struck 9.45 a.m., a hidden alarm clock in the basement triggered an explosion, causing George to be thrown against the basement wall and Frank knocked to his knee. The ninth graders had begun their final exams when they were startled by a large crash and the assembly room shook. The students fled as quickly as they could while ceiling plaster fell around them. The second graders in Leona Gutenkus' classroom were listening to a story when the brick wall at the front of the room fell onto the chairs that once occupied her students. The classroom that Blanche Hart had moved her fifth grade students into had collapsed onto the classroom below. 
the classroom where the sixth graders were taking their final exams. The senior boys who were playing outside, including Arthur Woodland, were thrown to the ground when a blast occurred. And Arthur remembers seeing the roof of the school caving in. At the church next door, Principal Huggett was helping prepare for the commencement ceremony when he was almost knocked off his feet by the explosion. As he rushed out of the church, he saw the entire north wing of the school was gone as the smoke and dust started to clear and he made his way towards the destruction. He could see children pinned underneath the roof of the school. The sound of the blast could be heard all over town. Charles Rawson, a railroad worker who lived close to town, heard the blast and immediately thought that the oil barrel stored near the depot had exploded. As he ran toward the town with his neighbor Sanford Sweet, they saw the entire roof of the, of the school's north wing go 10 feet in the air and, and then collapse back down. The men ran towards the school as fast as they could. As all of this is going on, a foreman for the consumer power company named Oscar Bush was working at the top of a utility pool when, they saw, when he saw that the Kehoe farm was on fire. He and his two crew members immediately headed towards the property. When they arrived, they went in the house on the side where the fire hadn't reached yet, trying to see if anyone was inside. They couldn't hear or see anyone, so they decided to try their best to salvage some of the furniture. That's when they found a bundle of dynamite in the corner of the room. Casual. Now, by that time, other neighbors had arrived after seeing the fire. The men rushed out of the building, and as they did, they could hear one of the other neighbors shouting that the school had been blown up. As the men were approaching their car, the farmhouse behind them exploded, and they rushed towards the school. Farmer Siney Howell and his sons also heard the explosions and saw the flames at the Kehoe farm. They raced over to try and help, and as they arrived, realizing they could not get to the property because of the flames, they saw Andrew's truck come out of the smoke. He stopped at their car and said, quote, Boys, you are my friends. You better get out of here. You better go down to the school. He then took off in the direction of the town. So at this point, everyone is heading to the school. It's a mad rush to try to see what happened and rescue the survivors. A desperate rescue mission was underway. People were digging with their bare hands, but a lot of the effort was halted by the fallen roof, which had crushed, crushed many of the classrooms containing the youngest students. The south wing of the school hadn't been completely destroyed, but it was violently rocked by the explosion. In the assembly room, students were climbing out onto the sloping roof. Superintendent Henry, Emery Huck made his way with them, and he called for townspeople to gather ladders. Quickly, all of the students, as well as Emery Huck, were down. As soon as they reached the ground, Emery ran to the phone and urged the switchboard operator to begin calling police, fire departments, and hospitals to prepare for the catastrophe around them. Mothers and fathers from all over town began arriving at the school, desperate to know if their children were okay. Many would be relieved to find their sons or daughters with nothing but scrapes. One man named Lyle Zufeld was working on a road nearby when he heard the sound of the explosion, and knowing his son was at the school, he headed straight there and immediately jumped into action trying to rescue the children and find his son. 
He pulled five boys out of a hole and his son escaped uninjured while his father was searching for him. But other parents wouldn't be as lucky. One woman, the mother of a third grader named Doris Elaine Johns, was one of the first parents to arrive on the scene. And as she did, one of the first things she saw was the lifeless body of a little girl hanging by her feet from the collapsed building. And she recognized the little girl as her daughter. This horrifying discovery would replay throughout the day as the bodies of children were removed from the crumbled building and laid on the grassy knoll just north of the school. The injured were brought to the same location to wait for help, while some were taken to nearby nearby houses, including that of Frank Smith and his wife, Leona. A man named Monty Ellsworth had gone to get ropes to help in the rescue, and on his way, he saw a Ford pickup racing down the road in the direction of the town. As it got closer, he recognized it as Andrew Kehoe's truck, and inside was Andrew with a ghastly grin fixed to his face. As Monty got back to the school, the rescue was still underway, and it quickly became clear that the ropes weren't going to be enough to get the roof off the building. One man suggested using a utility pole to try to pry the roof off the building. There was a pole nearby that hadn't been raised yet, so a few of the men retrieved it and were trying to wedge it under the roof, and that's when Andrew Kehoe pulled up to the scene of the chaos that he had created himself. Andrew caught Superintendent Emery Huck in his sights and called him over to the car. Emery, who was carrying the body of a child at the time, handed it to a woman beside him and approached the car. He put his foot up on the running board and leaned in to talk to Andrew. Words were exchanged, and then there was some sort of struggle. Many say that Andrew drew a gun and fired it into the back of his car, causing an explosion, killing himself, Superintendent Huck, Glenn Smith, Nelson McFarren, and an eight-year-old named Cleo Clayton, who had made it out of the initial explosion only to be killed in the second one. Several others were injured in this second blast as well, including a woman named Anna Perone, who was standing a block away with her infant daughter when she was hit by a piece of shrapnel that tore out one of her eyes and blew off part of her skull. Miraculously, she survived and the baby was unharmed. First responders arrived on scene and found a absolute scene of horror. By 10.30 a.m., about 15 minutes after Andrew had set off the car bomb, three dozen firemen had arrived on scene, followed by police officers from neighboring counties, doctors, nurses, Red Cross workers, construction workers. It was an all-hands-on-deck situation. Nothing of this magnitude had ever occurred, and certainly not in Bath Township. The governor and his wife arrived within hours to survey the devastation and offer support, quickly jumping in to aid in the rescue. The fire chief initially thought that the explosion was caused by high-test gasoline, which was often used in the heating systems of rural schools. But his theory quickly changed when he was approached by a state policeman and handed four sticks of dynamite that were removed from the Kehoe farm. Around this time, officials who were surveying the school's basement came across a pile of debris that had fallen from the ceiling. The men were Lansing Police Captain John O'Brien and William Clock of the Ingham County Sheriff's Department, 
and they noticed the debris was pyrotol. They also saw wires running from the explosive to an unknown source, so they immediately left the building and orders were given for the search and rescue to stop. The men, bravely, then returned to the building with two state policemen, as well as the fire chief. Following the wires that led from the pyrotol, they found over 300 additional sticks of unexploded pyrotol, 10 burlap sacks of gunpowder, and 204 sticks of dynamite planted throughout the building between the ceiling of the basement and the first floor of the school, all connected by wires to two hotshot batteries and a crude timing device from an alarm clock. Had all of this gone off as it was planned, it would have certainly been enough to level the entire school and kill everyone inside. But for some reason, faulty wiring or whatever it was, most of the dynamite that Andrew Kehoe had spent so long planting didn't explode. John O'Brien worked by flashlight, carefully disconnecting the blasting caps from the dynamite and removing all of the explosives from the school. Once they were finished, the search and rescue mission could continue. Several children were found and rescued from beneath the school wreckage. At the end of the rescue mission, 44 people were dead. Andrew Kehoe, Emery Huck, Glenn Smith, Nelson McFerrin, and two teachers, Blanche Hart and Hazel Weatherby, who was in an upright position with a child found in each of her arms as well as 38 children between the ages of 7 and 14 years old. On the morning of the explosion, Andrew had mailed a package to a man named Clyde B. Smith in Lansing. The box was marked over, but was clearly labeled as Pyrotol, like it was a reused box from the dynamite he had purchased. When he learned the identity of the man responsible for the school bombing, the station agent reported that he had seen Andrew that morning and he had sent a package to a man named Clyde Smith in Lansing. Police were obviously concerned about this. So Andrew Kehoe was not well and they were worried that this was another bomb. Clyde Smith was a real person. He was an insurance broker who only vaguely knew Andrew Kehoe, and there was no reason for him to be sending him a package. And at that time, the package remained missing. Until eventually it was discovered in Langsburg after it was mistakenly mailed there. Officers retrieved the package and brought it back to Lansing and buried it overnight. They then opened the box the next day, and to everyone's surprise, there were no explosives inside. Instead, Andrew had assembled and mailed all the records he had kept as the school board treasurer for some reason. As the search was ongoing at the school, a group of police officers returned to the Kehoe farm, and this is where a deputy sheriff named Roy Cole discovered Nellie Kehoe's body. She had been tied to a two-wheel hog cart and set on fire. An examination of her body revealed that the back of her skull had been crushed by a blow from a blunt force instrument. They also discovered the bodies of two horses in what remained of the barn. Their legs had been tied together so they couldn't escape the fire. Wired to a fence on the edge of the property was a piece of wooden board that had been made into a sign that read, Criminals are made, not born. Two days after the tragedy, the funerals began for the dead. Some families were burying multiple children. 
Some parents were burying all of their children. Eugene and Irene Hart lost all three of their children, 11-year-old Percy, 10-year-old Vivian, and 13-year-old Iola, while the Bromont, Hall, and Bergens families each lost two children. The outpouring of support was immense. Over 50,000 people flooded to the small town to grieve with the community. Andrew Kehoe's body was quietly buried unceremoniously. The media coverage of the disaster quickly faded out, in part because of Charles Lindbergh's successful first-ever nonstop transatlantic flight two days after the bombing. But for the small town of Bath, the story lives on. According to the Associated Press, out of the over 100 families of the community, there was none who didn't lose a child or relative or friend by the fiendish handiwork of Andrew Kehoe. And that is a tragic story of the Bath School disaster. Like I said, I had no idea that this happened. They don't teach you about this, do they? So... I hope you enjoyed the episode. Share it with your friends. The sources for today's episode will be listed in the show notes and also on the blog post for this episode. There's pictures of the school, the car, all of it on the blog post. That'll be linked to in the show notes. Um, Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner, available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, with new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want more content, head over to Patreon. You'll be supporting the show. You'll have access to the Patreon exclusive content and you can listen to the regular episodes early and ad free. Plus, you'll get an exclusive The Haunted Corner sticker if you subscribe at the $5 per month level for three three months or more. So plus a lot more. Check it out. Head over to patreon.com forward slash the haunted corner to join now. Follow us on social media at the haunted corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend, share it with your friends, tell everybody, subscribe on YouTube and rate and review wherever you listen. It really helps the show. If you have a case suggestion or a correction to share, please send it to the haunted corner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves, and we'll see you soon. Bye.